Mark Raven. Welcome to episode 255 of Lean Blog Audio. This is a post from April 3rd, 2018, titled, My Talk in Vegas, Leadership Lessons from Statistics and Psychology. How to Help Others Stop Sitting on Both Sides of the Change Fence. So today, I'm giving a keynote talk at the Lean and Six Sigma World Conference being held in Las Vegas. Now, I don't normally attend or speak at Lean Six Sigma events, but I had an opportunity here to give a new talk that touches on two of my favorite themes from recent years, the need to apply statistics and psychology to our lean management practices or to Six Sigma or whatever. The other keynote talk is being given by Captain Chesley Sully Sullenberger, so I'm really excited to hear him speak and hopefully get to meet him. In this post, I'll go through the main themes of my talk, and you can see the slides and get more information in a page I've linked to. You can find that by going to leanblog.org audio255. Deming before lean. Many people who are familiar with my work would probably frame me as a lean person or a lean healthcare person. Now, I don't hate that label, but I'd first consider myself a Deming person. I mean, before I ever got introduced to anything about Toyota, I was introduced to Deming's work because my dad attended a Deming four-day seminar through his job at Cadillac, and he had a copy of the book Out of the Crisis on the shelf at home. When I was graduating from college, I didn't really want a job in the auto industry after growing up near Detroit and hearing what the environment was like. I wanted a more modern workplace. But I got into the interviewing process with General Motors and learned about an opportunity with GM Powertrain at their Livonia engine plant. I mean, it was my hometown, and the plant was one that was supposedly influenced by Deming. They had a different labor agreement, and they operated under something they called the Livonia philosophy. And you can see a link to that document um, here in the blog post. It says, you know, changing business environment requires that, together through trust, communication, and respect for the individual, we will build an organization supportive of all employees and the development and utilization of their knowledge, ability, and skill toward the achievement of personal as well as organizational goals. Inherent in these goals is the production of a high-quality competitive product in a clean and safe plant, contributing to the success of Cadillac and its employees. In committing to the above philosophy, we recognize the development of the Livonia plant environment to be a dynamic process. Our success will be dependent upon support from the entire Cadillac organization in uh, the consistent and patient application of this philosophy. And it's signed by management, people, uh, union officials. I mean, it all sounded great. I, I, I took the job. It didn't take long to realize that the Deming stuff had been championed by a former plant manager who had since been promoted a few levels. The Deming philosophy wasn't embraced by the current plant manager or his managers under him. You know, Deming passed away in 1993, and that might have also been when the Livonia philosophy was pronounced dead. The Livonia philosophy, as good as it sounded, had been reduced to a bunch of posters and slogans on the wall. I mean, oh, the irony. And, you know, it's actual irony, unlike the Alanis Morissette song um, that was popular around that time. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think that... It's ironic that Deming stuff had become posters. It's ironic that a song about irony maybe isn't about irony, and, and maybe that's the point. But anyway, you know, why is Deming relevant today, almost 25 years after his death? 
Well, when I've traveled to Japan, including my most recent trip last month, Deming is still mentioned by organizations and leaders there, including some in healthcare. Deming was the inspiration and foundation for their quality movement. Toyota, a former Toyota chairman, Shoichiro Toyota once said, there's not a day I don't think about what Dr. Deming meant to us. Deming is the core of our management. So I hope that's true for Toyota leaders today, as I think Deming was very far ahead of his time. He was a revolutionary, and sometimes it takes a long time for heresy to be accepted as truth. So what's missing in lean daily management? Well, these days we see many organizations embracing and adopting what they call lean daily management or a daily management system or, or something like that. This is especially trendy in healthcare. Now, lean daily management is a great concept, and it's hard to argue with methods like huddles, Gemba visits, improvement boards, aligned and balanced metrics, and, and more. But I've also seen too many organizations that go and copy a tool, like some specific huddle board format from ThetaCare, without copying mindsets and philosophy. You know, it's one thing for managers to get out of their office to attend a huddle, but they also have to make sure they aren't blaming employees for quality problems or pushing all of the improvement responsibility onto them. As I've written about, I think lean daily management practices would be strengthened by best practice statistical methods, such as the process behavior charts of Donald J. Wheeler. And that's something that's the core of my upcoming book, Measures of Success, which you can um, see or hear more about at the end of this post and podcast. Too many huddle boards or strategy deployment walls incorporate what are frankly bad statistical methods as illustrated in the blog post. There's some pictures there. You might recognize these types of um, things that are posted. These methods include using single data points or two data point comparisons, comparisons to targets without understanding trends, faulty trend analysis, such as linear trend lines, so-called bowling charts with red and green color coding, and run charts with red and green color coding. In, in those methods, there's too much focus on the question of, are we hitting our targets, and not enough understanding of the difference between signal and noise in our metrics. Those methods um, that I mentioned here don't really help us understand the important questions of, are we improving, or how can we improve? So process behavior charts are better. As I've blogged about a lot and as I'm writing about uh, in the book Measures of Success, um, process behavior charts are a simple, effective, and helpful method that anyone can use. As Wheeler says, process behavior charts are a mindset with some tools attached. And that hopefully reminds you of Lean, where, of course, Lean is a mindset with some tools attached. Now, a process behavior chart helps us one, separate signal from noise, two, understand when to ask what happened and when not to overreact to a single data point, three, see meaningful trends or signals or shifts in our performance, four, prioritize improvement work and investigations into causes of poor performance, five, see if system changes lead to significant changes in our metric, and six, see if our changes are being sustained. But having a method like process behavior charts that's technically correct doesn't mean much if we can't get people to embrace the new method. But what if managers don't see anything wrong with the way they're managing? A new method can be a tough sell if it, if it solves a problem that people don't see or if it solves a, a problem that people don't consider to be a problem. Being right doesn't mean that others will go along. Being technically correct isn't enough. 
This is a change management challenge, and we shouldn't blame people for being quote unquote resistant to change. As the late Peter Schultes said, people don't resist change, they resist being changed. So when leaders or change agents complain that people are resisting change, do they really mean that people are being resistant to their idea? You know, Dr. Deming in his system of profound knowledge, as he called it, talked about four key elements. One, appreciation for a system. Two, knowledge of variation. And so I would add process behavior charts and the methodology there help us with those first two. The third thing in his list was the theory of knowledge. And the fourth was psychology. You know, Deming often gets labeled as a statistician, but he said that psychology was the most important thing for managers to understand. So let's talk about motivational interviewing, being stuck, and getting past ambivalence. In recent years, as I've blogged and podcasted about, I've taken an interest in a method for addiction counseling called motivational interviewing, and I've made a page with information and links to more resources about this. In a nutshell, Traditional addiction counseling shamed the addict and made them feel bad for being an addict. Counselors would often tell the patient what to do, and that would lead to pushback. We see similar dynamics in the workplace. Somebody says, you need to do gimbal walks. Well, no, I don't is a natural reaction or, or something like, no, I can't. When we push an idea, others will push back. It's natural and it should be expected. So motivational interviewing takes a very different approach. It's more effective in counseling settings, and I can see where it would be more effective in the workplace. In fact, motivational interviewing is something that's taught and used within Toyota, and I, I would encourage you, I've linked to it, check out Ron Oslin's webinar about this. Uh, it's a, a webinar he did uh, through the Lean Enterprise Institute that talks about how they used and taught these methods at Toyota. So motivational interviewing is defined in the seminal book on the approach as, a person-centered conversation style for addressing the common problem of ambivalence about change. And in the, uh, the, there's a fantastic book called Motivational Interviewing for Leadership, where the authors say, resistance is a term that seems to treat a normal part of the change process as abnormal or pathological, without recognizing how we as leaders may be contributing to the issue. Now, if you want to hear a podcast I did with the uh, co-authors of that book, you can go to leanblog.org slash 292. Resistance to change isn't a problem, or we shouldn't view it that way. It's an expected part of the change process. And I think that's a key. Change is a process. Change isn't like flipping a light switch. It takes time, effort, conversation. And that's why motivational interviewing is helpful in the workplace when we're leading people. So instead of labeling somebody as bad for resisting change and giving up on them, we should lean in, as they say. Detecting resistance is the start of the conversation about change, not the end of it. So a less loaded term that's used in the motivational interviewing methodology is that word ambivalence. Somebody who is ambivalent about change is on both sides of the fence, as they say. Now, recently, I was talking with a nursing unit manager who is struggling to find time for daily huddles and gimbal walks. She said, I'm stuck. Now that seemed like classic ambivalence language. Instead of me making her feel bad or telling her what to do, my role as a coach is to engage her in a conversation about change. 
Somebody who's ambivalent will say things that we would call change talk. You know, the nursing manager said, I need to do those gimbal walks each day. So she knows what she needs to do, but there are also reasons not to do it, as we would hear in what's called sustained talk. She said, it's really hard to make time. So me doubling down and telling her that she should do gimbal walks or that she needs to doesn't give her any new information. You know, she has some level of commitment and knowledge of what she needs to do, but it's not happening. The predictor of change in the motivational interviewing mindset is when change talk outweighs sustained talk. Now, I've had my own struggles with ambivalence about uh, this book project, Measures of Success. You know, here's a situation where the change, writing a book, is completely self-initiated. There are many benefits that I would predict that would come from writing this book, but even positive self-initiated change can be difficult. You know, I've expressed change talk about the book over time, including things like, I need to write it, I'm going to write it, I want to finish it, I'm going to finish it. Uh, my sustained talk in my own head uh, or sometimes articulated, um, expressed to others included things like, I'm busy. What if people don't like it? What if it doesn't make a difference? You know, how do coaches help somebody get past ambivalence? Telling them what to do or what motivational interviewing calls the writing reflex is human nature, just as resistance to change is natural and expected. The book Motivational Interviewing describes the writing reflex, that's R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, writing. The writing reflex is the desire to fix what seems wrong with people and to set them promptly on a better course, relying in particular on directing. It's human nature. It's well-intended. The problem is it doesn't work. Last summer, I saw a fantastic presentation at the Lean Coaching Summit with leaders from a nonprofit organization called Beyond Emancipation. One of the women said, I spent eight years telling foster kids what to do, and it was exhausting. So we can't blame them um, for telling kids or young adults what to do. It's human nature. Again, it's well-intended. But they eventually learned, you know, without motivational interviewing being the direct influence, that, as they said later, we believe that the person closest to the problem is closest to the solution. So that reminds me of the spirit of motivational interviewing, as it's called, and it reminds me of lean leadership. We don't tell people what to do. We also don't leave people alone to figure it out themselves. We guide, coach, and mentor them. So evoking reasons for change, guiding people through that change process is more effective. So to, to do that, the four motivational interviewing processes are one, engaging, two, focusing, three, evoking, and four, planning. We can guide people through this, but only if they've given permission to be coached. We can't assume somebody wants to be coached. If we make that assumption, they maybe won't accept it. If we rush to the planning phase without first engaging the person and building a relationship, change is less likely to happen. The guiding and coaching process involves skills that can be remembered with the acronym ORS. O for open-ended questions, A for affirmations, R for reflective listening, and S for summaries. In Lean, we often emphasize leading by asking open-ended questions. We've heard a lot about that in recent years. But as you learn more about motivational interviewing, you'll see that statements can be helpful at times.
when we face someone who is stuck, like that nursing unit manager um, or, or myself, we can ask questions like, why would you want to make this change? How would you go about it in order to succeed? And what are the three best reasons to do it? So I asked the nurse manager to articulate why it's important for her to do gimbal walks. That evoked change talk that led her in a more positive direction. And I asked these questions of myself related to my book. So through coaching, we can help the person articulate more change talk, aiming to help them increase their level of commitment and to also increase their confidence that they can make the change happen. So can we reframe resistance to change? Well, I think it's important for leaders and change agents to reframe resistance to change. In the past, we might have asked, why are they resistant to gimbal walks? Or why are they being resistant to process behavior charts? So going forward, let's try to engage people in a conversation about change. That's more difficult and more time consuming than labeling people and casting them aside, but it's more effective. What's more important, being right or being effective? Now, I can't tell you to try that approach. I can only invite you to learn more about it. So let's talk about here to wrap up the soft launch of measures of success. So today, in conjunction with that conference, I'm doing a very, very early soft launch of measures of success through leanpub.com. I'm releasing the first three chapters of the book uh, following the iterative lean publishing style that encourages authors to publish early and publish often. If you buy the book now and you can do so, um, you can find uh, the link at leanpub.com slash measures of success, or you can go to www.measuresofsuccessbook.com to find a link. So if you buy it now as an early adopter, you'll have the chance to give me feedback and you'll be notified as more content is added to the book. Today, you'll be able to download a PDF file. Within a few weeks, you'll also be able to, to download EPUB and Mobi formats. Mobi is the Kindle format that can be read on various devices. When the book is done, I, my goal for this is June, um, that's, that's change talk. Um, it will also be available, there's commitment there. It'll also be available through the Amazon Kindle store and perhaps also as a paperback book. So again, for information um, and, and links to everything we've talked about here, long post, long podcast today, you can go to leanblog.org audio 255.